0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at gardencult.com.
2: Today, I'm speaking with Sashi Chandran, founder and CEO of Tea Drops, the organic ground leaf teas that dissolve right into your cup. No bag or infuser needed. Sashi launched Tea Drops in 2015, and it was recently named one of the fastest growing direct-to-consumer brands on Shopify. Also available in over 2,000 retailers across the US, Tea Drops is just getting started. Welcome Sashi. Thank
3: you so much for having me. I'm excited. I'm
2: so happy to have you here. I I have to say I had no idea when I started the podcast that I was going to, like one of the best parts of it was going to be like learning about all of these amazing innovative brands. Like I kind of knew, but I but I didn't really. And when I was reading about how you basically, you know, took a massive kind of challenge a and B sort of waste component out of tea. I like it, it's like truly innovative and very cool. So congrats. And well, it's yeah, really kind fun of to learn about jealous
3: that you get to do this, you know, in a sense that, um, <laughs> some of the greatest insights I learn is just talking to other founders Totally. Um, and, you know, people actually behind the scenes. So yeah, it's very cool that you get to do this.
2: No, I mean, that's that hopefully that's what people listening get out of it, you know, because Mm -hmm. I was having so many great conversations. And it's like I always say it's the people that are like six months to two years ahead of you kind of Mm -hmm. in the in the scaling process that help the most. You know, sometimes like the how I built this is of the world are Right, right. They're almost like too inspirational and they're like are too right. far away from what's happening. <laughs> it's like I can't you know? relate at all. But. Right. Like, <laughs> I know you were day. on your couch 30 years ago and someone had mm-hmm. to lend you that last money for the thing. But like, how did you actually make the sticker for your yes. box? You know? Yes, um, totally. So let's get, let's, you know, get into it. I mean, I also feel like one of the big things that I've learned in the last couple of years doing this is just this idea of sort of founder product fit. And Mm -hmm. how it's the founders that have a deep connection to their product rather than, you know, the founders that kind of analyze and find a white space and then try to fit a story in. Um, There's something that just like really feels different about brands like yours. So tell me a little bit about your experience with tea Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just why, you know, why this, why, you know, how you got here?
3: Yeah. Well, my story with tea and my love of tea really starts with my family upbringing and specifically the the story of my parents' journey. Um, so both my parents, parents are immigrants to the U S my dad was born in Sri Lanka, um, which is an Island off the coast of India. And my mom is Chinese. So my mom, um, you know, my mom came to to the U.S. when she was eight. My dad came when he was 28 to do his MBA. And my dad was actually born on a tea estate in Sri Lanka. And those two countries at one time were the largest producers and exporters mm-hmm. of tea in the world. So that naturally just, you know. It's in your blood. Yeah. Unbeknownst <laughs> to me growing right. up, just I thought it was normal to always have tea at your dining table, and at family gatherings, and really any occasion, mm-hmm. but it turns out it's actually very specific, um, at least back then, to Asian cultures, where tea right. is really that, that grounding and centering beverage that brings everyone together. So that, in a nutshell, is kind of the link I have to tea, whereas it, it's very um, kind of essential to my family upbringing and how I was raised and also my parents' story.
2: Yeah. And then you you weren't I mean growing up did you think I'm going to I'm going to be a founder? What like what were you thinking that you were going to do and I think you were working at eBay when the yeah. idea came to you. So tell yeah. me about your I early career.
3: I didn't have the words to articulate that I was an entrepreneur but I always did things that were enterprising, in a sense, whether it's, um, you know, having my own little cookie shop as a kid, or, or jewelry store as a kid, or, you know, my parents were also in their own way, entrepreneurs and had side hustles. So I would always kind of watch them and see what they did and learned a lot of just about enterprising from them. Mm -hmm. So by the time, you know, I graduated college, and I started working at my First corporate job, one of one of the first was working at eBay. Um, I had already experimented with a lot of different side hustles, mm-hmm. and but it wasn't like full blown businesses. It would be you know um, having a pop up at an artisan show, making right. tea infused soaps, or making. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a concept for this this cookie um, cookie idea, which is basically baking freshly baked cookies on the spot. Um, And so I was testing out that concept too. And so it wasn't a huge leap, I would say, to have this idea for tea drops. I think what was different about this idea is that it ended up being an idea that I stuck with um, and I continued to dive deeper into.
2: Yeah. I mean, and and I guess, you know, the way that I always read the stories and then sort of like draw the pictures in my head. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the story is, you know, how do you have tea available, you know, kind of at the ready without having to go through this, this process, I guess. I mean, yeah. The genesis
3: for the idea was really just, uh, you know, I was such a tea drinker, as I mentioned from my family upbringing, and I was always making loose leaf tea at my work desk. So, when you are a loose leaf tea drinker, you realize that there's a lot of steps and a lot of, I guess you could call it tea paraphernalia you mm-hmm. need to do it, whether it's the actual loose leaf tea, the strainer, the kettle, the cup, you need time to steep the tea leaves. And if you're in a fast paced work environment, that's probably not um, the most convenient right process to go through. So I saw that in my own behavior and, and you know, I was a young working professional. And I was just like, you know, what are other people doing Mm -hmm. to address this? Is there any other Mm -hmm. easy way to prepare loose leaf tea? And I kept looking, I would go to tea shops, I would go to my grocery store. And I just, you know, besides matcha, I never found an easier, easy way to prepare a higher quality cup of tea, which I I would say loose leaf tea really delivers. Yeah. Um, And so that was the genesis for me to kind of think, okay, well, maybe I can start experimenting at home and come up with something that at least would satisfy my own personal need. I didn't even think about it more widely as a business, but I think as I was going through that process of experimenting, I realized, you know, if, if this is something that works for me, um, this has to
2: be something that might resonate with others. And what did you come up with? I mean, you did you come up with like packing them? Like how... W- what was it started proud. out as yeah. I
3: want that same matcha concept. Mm-hmm. I wanted to apply that to black tea. So and, ground it kind of. Yeah. And oolong yeah. tea. So just finally grind it. And I realized, oh, okay, well, um, you know, black tea is a little bit lighter than, than green tea. So you have a lot of that tea sediment that rises to the top mm-hmm. of your cup. So then from there, it's just continuously experimenting with other formats and one day I actually got this idea I think maybe I was in a bath but that whole concept of a bath bomb which is Mm -hmm. like something you dunk into hot water it dissolves and it makes a really nice infusion um, a bath infusion and I kind of I kept latching on to that idea that could I make this bath bomb concept for tea And so I went through a lot of trial and error, about a year and a half of that, just at my home and my kitchen. And then one day I was introduced to SCORE, which is a small business resource center that provide pro bono um, business advice. And I met up with a a mentor there who was the first to kind of give me this notion or idea that this could be um, something patentable. You know, before Mm -hmm. that, I hadn't really thought of that as I was inventing something. Right. But at that point, um, I went down the path of filing a utility patent for the idea, the process of how I made these, you know, I don't even think I called them tea drops at the time. Um, and then slowly started making it, you know, in my kitchen and commercial commercially selling it.
2: I mean, you know, it's really interesting because I remember meeting an investor early on and, them asking specifically about that, like they're, you know, just because this is a podcast for founders and future founders and, Mm -hmm. you know, people on founding teams to basically listen and learn from. If there is something about your process that is truly innovative and, you know, it, I mean, it's worth going down that you know, trying to get something patented, right. Because it does add value beyond the product itself to, you know, essentially what the value of your company is.
3: Definitely. And I would say, you know, early on, I think I wish I would have just talked to a patent attorney or someone sooner about it rather than deliberating about it because, um, you know, at that time I just thought there's no way that this could be a new invention in the tea category. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the tea is thousands of years old. Why to come in and say, oh, you know, let me innovate in this space, but you just never know. And I think to your point, it's just always great to investigate that first um, before you shut it down.
2: Yeah. And so you figured out how to do it in your house, but you know, was this something that you needed to bring to like an actual manufacturer because of whether it was equipment or speed or efficiency or, you know, whatever, like, did it work at home? Speed
3: and efficiency became the number one issue (laughs) and constraint. So um, surprisingly, this was a concept. If you had the right tools, you could, I was able to um, manufacture this at home for a certain period of time. There was a cottage food license in mm-hmm.
0: California
3: that enabled you to make food products at your home up to a certain revenue threshold. So, for those of you interested in that, I highly recommend you you research that law. Yeah. Um, but then after that, you know, once it started scaling, I moved to a commercial kitchen where I was sharing, essentially, renting out a kitchen with other food makers and I would have my time allocation, and I would go through mm-hmm. the whole process um, with help, of course, to to recreate the whole manufacturing process. And once we grew out of that, that's when I turned to a co-manufacturer
2: to help scale. Yeah.
3: Um, and that was hard
2: to find because, you know. Uh, you were doing <laughs> something that they didn't know how to do, and they've never done, and they don't like that at all. Yes. Yeah. They yeah. do <laughs> not like anything that is outside of the mold of, like, you know whatever i know nutrition bar or cookie or whatever it's they don't it's funny like eight out of like, 10 yes. founders that i have on here like so much of the struggle is finding a co-packer cuz they all say you can't do that you know, it would be yeah. so much better if you just did this or yeah. instead of doing that, can we do this? And, you know, instead of actual ingredients, can we use this? And yeah. And
3: then you have you to know. also understand they just want the easiest path yeah, to production as possible. So then you can understand why your, um, you know, your desires are not, not always in alignment. Right. But obviously your your job as the entrepreneur is to push and push and find and find and search. So eventually we found
2: someone to make it. So we've kind of talked about getting it off the ground logistically. How did you get it off the ground just from finding a consumer and sales? And how did you start selling it? What, you know, what did you learn kind of very early on that shaped the way that you decided to grow it?
3: Um, Very slowly at first. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, this was definitely something that Took time to you know it wasn't like we launched the site and then I had a s- thousands of orders just waiting for me right. Um, I you just church. launched like a Shopify site basically. I, and- I launched yeah. I went through many iterations. Um, before that there was Big Commerce. Um, and then I think I think I used Weebly, then another one, and then Big Commerce, and finally I found Shopify, um, which was definitely game changing. Right. But I remember turning on our website and it took a while to, for us to even receive an order of, mm-hmm. from someone I didn't
2: know. I mean, and, did you, did you market it at all? Or, I mean, were you trying to, or, did, um, you know,
3: I didn't have money to really market right. it. I should add that, you know, I bootstrapped this business from the very beginning um, until we ended up raising capital, but you know, this was my own savings. So right. I, and also I didn't know what to expect in terms of spend. And I, at that time I was, kind of hesitant to, to really invest a lot in marketing without really knowing if, if I actually had product market fit in a sense. So, um, I just launched the site. I remember one of my big free marketing ideas was to (laughs) launch and announce tea drops on my birthday on Facebook. Cause I, at that Mm -hmm. time, I remember those days when Facebook you had to go to someone's page to wish them a happy birthday. So you were, you were bound to see things that were on their timeline. Right. right. So I realized, okay, I'm going to get the most amount of traffic on my Facebook page on my birthday. So I decided to announce it and also say, you know, I will send you a sample of this kind of new project I have going on. If you will provide feedback. And so I think I had, you know, 70 plus friends, um, submit, a form for their address. And then I sent them a link to a survey. And so I got a lot of instant feedback that way. And then, you know, friends who just wanted to support who then went to my website and purchased.
2: I mean, I think that's the thing, you know, I think back and I mean, I'm still, I'm still learning this three years later. I'm Mm -hmm. still surprised at how much you have to, you have to go out you know, whether you spend money on it or you, or you're just like running around with signs alone, you know, like people aren't looking for, for us, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) it's, it's, I mean, I know that sounds like very rudimentary, but I'm still kind of like, wait, they're not like, I would be looking for us. Well, of course I would be looking for us. You would be looking for you, but you know, it's, it's, it, it really does kind of, it's always a little bit I guess, to use a very overused word, like humbling to know that, you know, people aren't just like, they don't walk by and they're like, oh, I have to have that now. You know, like we really do have to work hard getting things off the ground just to tell people, A, that we exist, B, how to use us, you know, because everyone's habits are very, they are ingrained,
0: Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so changing
2: people's habits, I think. And I want to actually talk about that after the break. Mm-hmm. But before we go to the break, when did you, do you remember like a moment or like a aha where you knew you actually had a real business and like, this was a thing?
3: Yeah, I think there were two moments. Um, you know, I started doing a ton of artists and shows and those are, you know, those kind of um, street show pop-ups. And then I learned about these grocery, not grocery, um, Gift shop wholesale shows, Mm -hmm. and those happen across the country. Um, They're not specific to grocery at the time. I was actually focusing more on the gift um, shop industry because I realized their their lead times for, for payment were net 30 days or less. And you know, as you know, you're in grocery. Those lead yeah. times for grocery can be
2: nine days or more. Sometimes you know, and it's on the- a perfect fit. I feel yes. like you know every yes. hotel gift shop across America has like cute, fun things. And what better than like I can make myself a cup of tea in the hotel, also. Right,
3: right. And so I remember one of the first shows I did for that. I prepared so intensely um, to to you know showcase my products and. I remember ended ending up with wholesale orders that amounted to I think over ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars that show, and um, you know that was a huge moment of validation. Yeah, you know to to be like okay, if I can generate, and I think at that show we won most innovative product.
0: Cool. So yeah,
3: that 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 I think was definitely a defining moment very early on in the journey. I mean, right. subsequent shows did not amount to that. I think sometimes right. life gives you that, those little nuggets of hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, totally, yeah, this is great. But then totally have to work so hard for
2: for um, other shows yeah. or other opportunities. It's like fits and starts. It's yes. like nothing yes. just goes straight up, you know? Yes, yeah. exactly.
3: So, but that was like the first thing. I'm like, okay, maybe this can be a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say the second thing is when we got our first Kind of bigger um, order from a notable retailer. I think our first was Anthropology,
2: mm-hmm. and
3: so that getting that PO, sense. even though it wasn't huge, it was definitely like, okay, this is this Real. is like commercially appealing, and um, there's something here.
2: Amazing. All right, we're going to take a quick break, um, and when we get back, we're going to talk about changing people's habits. After I think um, several tens of thousands of years of Mm -hmm. tea drinking. (laughs) We'll be
1: right back. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials plants and trees that you already have and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family get started at gardencult.com for a 15 percent discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions use code hrn15 through september 30th 2021 that's code hrn15 at gardencult.com
2: I'm back with Sashi Chandran, founder and CEO of Tea Drops. Um, Okay, so you know, like what we were talking about at the very beginning. I, I mean, I actually look back on some of my first episodes, and I kid you not, I think episode three or four was like, "What is operations? Mm-hmm. Like, what is?" I had I literally didn't know what that even meant. I I really started at zero, and similarly people would throw the word category around a lot. And I was kind of like, when you, you know, it's, it was just one of those words that of course it's, it's very self-explanatory. And yet if it's not the language that you speak, you know, it, it didn't really mean that much to me at the time, but let's talk about category. Um, because T is, is a really big one. It's, Pretty much my guess is dominated by a couple of players. Correct me if I'm wrong. And loose leaf is probably not, you know, at least in the American market, I would imagine, as much of a of a player. You know, what how did you you know, you were busy making, you know, and innovating, but I'm imagining that you were also doing some category research at the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. what, you know, th- thinking about, you know, if you were doing it now, what did you know at that time was important to learn about the category you were entering? And then what surprised you and what has kind of surprised you along the path mm-hmm. for anyone yeah. going into any category? Essentially, Yeah.
3: I mean, for me, so much of that research was done even before I had the product in place because I was going to stores, I was going to tea shops, I was trying to find a product that I would want to exist, which is a more convenient way to enjoy loose leaf tea, and I didn't see it. And I started then going to the World Tea Expo, or at least Mm -hmm. their website, and looking at statistics around, you know, what was the last innovation, true innovation in the tea category, and I learned that it was 1919 when the tea bag was invented. (laughs) Um, Right. so, and then, you know, you see kind of Powder based beverages like Crystal Light was a big mm-hmm. one at the time, but really nothing that um, was huge. But I do think it was important to go to these sites to learn from, you know, industry players what, you know, what were the emerging trends. And so, by, by, so I'll, I'll taper that with, I think, another important aspect, which is you can't get too caught up in the industry data, meaning, you know, you are taking a look at historically what's been done. And if you look at the tea category, you're right. It's thousands of years old. There hasn't been much innovation in it. If I just iterated on making a better tea bag than someone else, that wouldn't have been a true innovation, right? Right. So I think it's important to not just um, be st- tied or stuck yep. to the products you're seeing in a category, I think what helped was I'm actually not in the CPG space Mm -hmm. or food industry. So it allowed me a lot more freedom to think differently about a new innovative way to even approach tea and the ritual of, of tea drinking. Um, and so I think that was one thing that was surprising is that I used to always kind of be hard on myself or, um, feel like I wasn't qualified yeah in the well, we all, because I mean because those I consider smart,
0: right I <laughs> didn't
3: come from right. this industry I didn't understand like when I met with buyers and they would ask me questions I didn't understand what they meant um, and so I'd be really hard on myself about that but one thing that I think was our saving grace is that I actually didn't come from the category right. itself so I could think about things differently
2: especially when it came to packaging. Right. Well, I'm going to add one thing to that because I think that the other, you know, the other thing that you're talking about is being an expert. You know, Mm -hmm. you you made yourself an expert in this bigger thing, not the, the, you know, how many billions of dollars and what stores and ACV and yada, yada, but you made yourself like the expert of tea, Mm -hmm. which I think people kind of forget sometimes because they do get tunnel vision. And, you know, when you're focused on a task, it's very easy to just like zoom in on the task. But I think when you can get your brain to back up and, you know, go kind of further out and zoom out and look at it, you know, in a historical context, in a, in a broader kind of, what are we trying to achieve? Like, what's the goal? What, what is, what is the thing that people feel when they make this? Then you're, you've taken it out of this like very simple Mm
1: -hmm. conversation
2: Mm -hmm. and you've made yourself someone who maybe you didn't know exactly, by the way, I feel like all of the acronyms for all of the stores are different and I feel like they're meant to confuse us. So that, yeah. you know, yeah. but you know, you might not know what like an MOQ is, but you know about tea and that gives you again, that sort of more like you're the right founder for this company yes. because of that. Yes. I think that, and I also
3: knew myself, I knew I was a a, a tea drinker and I knew I had, a, I had a, like a good intuitive sense of what I, um, what, at least initially, what products we should launch, what flavors. Right. Um, and that I think became more important than the, the
2: category knowledge. Yep. Okay. So speaking of category, so we've talked about this with other, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages to everything. There are very hot categories that have lots of fun and, and you know, you can, you can ramp up sales pretty quickly and people know exactly what to do. Refrigerated beverage, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sleepier categories, categories of things that have been done a certain way, like tea or like sauce, you know, that have been done a certain way for a long time, and the consumer's very used to a particular kind of shopping experience and a particular kind of like use experience, they need a lot more education. Mm-hmm. You know, people need to understand what to do. And as intuitive as it might feel like you just drop it in water, I'm sure people are still like, but wait, what do you mean? What do I do with it? Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess my question is twofold. One is how have you found the best way to educate consumers is like what are the kind of things you've learned along the way that you're like oh this really worked and separately even though it's related what have you found works with retailers because they're different a mm-hmm. lot of the time
3: yeah um so with retailers at shows you know i would do a lot of demoing like i mm-hmm. i made tea drops into these smaller Sample sizes to demonstrate how this worked in real time. You know, and you can do that with buyers. You can do that when you're at Expo, etc. Um, I think the harder part is the education of consumers, and we've gone through so many iterations of our packaging um, yeah. and communication on the packaging. I think it is a hurdle for us, definitely in the retail space. Um, so we have to rely a lot on. On demos, we have to rely a lot on like visual education on right. our shippers or any promos we have or any opportunities we get to talk about our product in um, in the retailer, you know, inserts or um, catalogs. Yep. What I realize, and this goes hand in hand with your sales channel, is you have to know for your product what is that right sales channel. It may right. not make sense to go to grocery retail right away. And I think that's a mistake I made early on. You know, I started, everyone says, you know, you have to get on board with UNFI, you have to mm-hmm, try to get into mm-hmm. Whole Foods as fast as possible. And in hindsight, I actually would have um, slowed down on that Yep. and focused more on the channels where I could have that direct relationship with the consumer and educate them. And that happens to be for us online. Um, yeah. Not to say it's impossible to do in store, but that once you kind of have a critical mass of people who've been exposed to you online, who see how tea drop works, then they're more inclined to be like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that on, on you know, when I was browsing right. on Facebook and now I see it in store. I understand what that what that is and how it works.
2: I think that's such a great point. And it's it comes up, you know, I remember Madeline from Nut Pods, like she grew her business on Amazon.
0: that was her channel. Mm -hmm.
2: She crushed that channel. And then, and that was purely because she couldn't afford at that time with the company to, like you said, go to retailers. She couldn't take the payment terms Mm -hmm. and she couldn't fulfill. And so it wasn't like she, you know, I mean, she's a brilliant woman, but at the time it wasn't like, she was like, this is going to be my sales channel of choice. Right. Mm -hmm. But there is Mm -hmm. something about like, I always compare it to, you know, when you're doing a puzzle and there's a piece and you're like, I can make this fit. It's it fits, you know. okay okay, well, there's like a little gap, but fine, it's fine. And then you realize, like, nope, this does not fit. And I'm just going to go over to that other corner and start working on that edge of the puzzle. Like, yeah, if if you actually just listen to the product a little bit and to the signals that are coming at you. It sounds like I'm being like falsely sort of like Zen about this. It's not, it's not that it's that there are natural channels that work for products and there are ones that are going to be harder. And I think this is such a great point and so helpful because there are a lot of channels You know, I do have people come to me really early on and want to go global with Whole Foods. And I'll say to them, I think this would be amazing in the hotel gift shops. Like,
3: Mm -hmm. you know how
2: many people there are just like out there getting little shops and they want fun, cool things and they want gift items and they want things that, you know, they can put their name on the front of the box like that, you know. D2C happens to be an incredible channel, and it's one obviously that's exploded over the last couple of years. And, you know, I would imagine, and we'll talk about this for you, lightweight and you know, subscription model and all of that sounds like a home run for you. But I think it's it's such a good point to remember that there is not one way to build the business. And yeah. it's about your product and it's about your customer and it's about what works for you. You know, sometimes, you know, we were bootstrapped also. And, you know, it's a very different experience than being VC funded before you've even made a product,
0: right? Mm-hmm. You, you
2: you go mm-hmm. into things very differently. Um, so I think that's, that I'm really glad you said that because I think it's really helpful for people to hear. And, you know, once you realized that you know, direct was your your sweet spot. Tell me about how you leaned into that. So now you you you've kind of, you know, there are all these channels. You know that this one is sort of like where you can really speak with the most directly, where consumers are coming to look for you, where you can show them how to use it. What what would you say, you know, when you sat down with whoever and you're like, okay. Now we're going to like really put the pedal to the metal. What were the things that you did to, to really get the growth?
3: Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a couple things. I think one is just realizing that if you're going to, you can't be um, in service of all channels yeah. and you're going to have to, especially with a finite amount of resources, double down on something. Even now we go through that constant question, right? Are we, are we spreading ourselves too thin? Are we in too many right. channels? Um, and says so omni channel,
2: omni channel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I, yeah,
3: yeah. I think you need to focus, like, it really just does come down to focusing. And so once we decided to make direct to consumer our channel, you know, that's when I went all in on learning everything I could about D2C, talking to other founders, raising capital on the premise of direct to consumer. And obviously, before you can even do that, you have to show some traction online. And so I started just. Um, you know, hiring, assembling the right team to grow D2C.
2: Was Um, there a particular when you were doing that, you know, were you like, I need to find someone who's done X, Y, Z. And what would you say that, was.
3: Yeah, the digital marketing manager, I wanted someone who previously had worked for a startup, preferably a consumer package good or in the beauty space, who, is, who had grown. I think our very first digital marketing hire was a digital marketing manager who had previous experience at an apparel company and at a skincare company of doing similar things, you know, like going into the Facebook ad account, um, creating... Specific campaign ads, driving right. traffic, understanding the, the the terminology there, LTV, cost of acquisition. Um, so I had demonstrated experience doing that. Right now, this wasn't the most expensive hire. Later on, I felt like okay, um, I hired someone with a, more experience there. But initially, that's that's all we could afford. Yeah. yeah. And so we had to prove out certain metrics that hey, we could get to a certain. Annual growth rate. We could go to get to a certain revenue. We could, um, you know, demonstrate that we that there's enough um, that you know tea is such a some people consider an inexpensive category that we could actually have a relatively high average mm. order size mm-hmm. online. So right. all of those things kind of became our north star in right. demonstrating. Um, and so you know we were able to do that the first couple of years, slowly but surely grow that. And then um, you know, that enabled us to attract just more, um, more investment just in service of the direct-to-consumer growth and add on a subscriptions offering um, and a lot more product offerings and, and like a, a great site experience that you know, we're constantly working on. But the, we want to make it more of a destination uh, of self-care and of right. you know, tea knowledge
2: and tea community. Right. So let's talk about the subscription a little bit because, Mm -hmm. you know, we're building our new website. Direct to consumer is not for a fresh sauce where you have to buy a six pack for $70. It's going to be our like core channel. Mm -hmm. We have to have it. That's fine. Um, You know, I always kind of giggle when they're like, they show me the mock-ups with the subscription option. I'm like, okay, so this person who's subscribing is getting six pouches of chimichurri every month. Like mm-hmm. they really need to like the sauce. Like this is, you know, I, yeah. I, I just don't know who that person is. Turns out we have like a few subscribers, which kind of makes me giggle. Mm-hmm. I'm thrilled for them. Thank you, if you're listening. That said, tea, you know, I mean, I, it's not, you know, it's, it makes a lot of sense. as something if you, it's kind of like coffee pods, right? There are mm-hmm. three things I have on subscription, the little things that go in my espresso maker, you know, I don't know, vibes, cause I love it. And I, and I, and I think some skincare thing other than that, you know, you sign up for the subscription, you get your whatever percent off, and then you cancel the subscription, which is basically, I guess, how people do it. But for you guys, it really makes sense because of the ritualistic kind of piece of it. It, Did you find that? Like, did you... Um, I guess, A, is that even true? And B, like, does it change your projections having to deal with subscription? And, you know, is there a goal to have it be a certain percentage of the business because of the, you know, lifetime value of the consumer? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you think about it?
3: All of those things we think through. I think it's very hard to executionally deliver a great subscriptions experience. And that's something people undervalue. They just think, let me get a subscriptions program up. Um, they use whatever you know is the latest um, subscriptions engine to do it. They don't really yep. think through the customer experience because it's logistically very hard to enable a consumer to customize something. They just kind yep. of um, do a lightweight weight version, and we did that, you know, when we first got it yep. up and running because we just wanted to test that we there was some traction. Um, lucky for us, we saw that there was some initial take. And enough to justify a larger build out. But right. I will say that you you don't actually know the potential of your subscriptions offering unless you very right. intentionally build it out from scratch, yes. which is being able to, you know, personalize that experience, enable the consumer to choose, pick and choose what they want in the box, right. have it very easy for them to pause, skip, cancel um, and have a UI that's very easy to follow, that makes it super seamless if they ever want to change things up or return back, yep. et cetera. And all of these things are easy to say, to implement, but so hard to deliver on because no, yeah. it's, a, it's a development build. It's costs money. There's so many things that you need to uh, operationally to make it work on the back end. Very difficult.
2: Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting that you're saying that because there, you know, we we've been thinking about sort of a build your own box and all of that. And it's not just challenging in one way, it's challenging in like 17 different ways. Oh, and yeah, Cause it's a ripple effect. It's like, once totally. you make that on one end, then a dev side,
3: you have to make it, um, you know, on the, you know, 3PL side, 3PL, exactly. it's, it's a nightmare with the 3PL. Cause it's like, especially the cost goes up substantially for each right. pick. So I'm not saying this is the easy thing to do. If you have a product where it makes sense, Again, I think it's right. worth investing. I, uh, what we did first is we lightweight tested it with just like a, we we called it our tea and chat box. It was a curated box. So people couldn't choose what exactly what's in their box, but it rotates every month. There's a there's a um, content piece component to it that's centered around self-care topics and mm-hmm. themes. Um, we partner with other other great small businesses, um, in the CPG space who would add on like a free gift in the box. So it was very experiential in that way. And we gained our first kind of several thousand subscribers that way. And now we want to move towards a more customizable experience.
2: Right. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, I think the buzzwords these days are, you know, there's commerce, there's content and there's community. And it seems like subscription, I think everyone kind of got excited about the idea, like you said at the beginning, because it felt like a good way to sort of like add to the like LTV basically of, you know, and I guess, you know, if you're acquiring a consumer and they, even if they get, you know, two months worth, you've cut your, you know, CAC and half or, you know, whatever the thesis is behind it. But I think consumers have caught on to the sort of hack. And I think they've also, they're looking for something. If they are subscribing to something, either it's just a commodity product that they really need on a daily basis and they want to make sure they don't have to think about, or they're looking for that, that community piece they're looking to they're they're subscribing to something because they want to be a part of
0: your world
2: and that's what you're talking about it's if you don't make that feel special to them and give them some insight into something that you know about this community or you know content that speaks to something greater than like here's our product they're going to likely feel
3: not connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think the connection piece is very important with the, not all subscriptions. Some people just want, like you said, a replenishment right. kind of program. But for ours, because tea is so, like there's such a self-care aspect to mm-hmm. our brand and yeah. also the ritual of tea, that that has to be
2: infused into the subscriptions
3: experience for
2: us. And then is there someone just whose entire job it is to make sure that the subscribers are getting those access to the other brands and that they have a special you know, email flow and that they're
1: getting, yes. I
2: mean. So before and- I would say no,
3: like we launched this in the back the beginning of 2020 um, right in the beginning or kind of a few months before the pandemic. And we, the marketing team, you know, it was like three or four of us were just, this was kind of a side project for us and we didn't want to invest more in it until we could prove it out. Mm-hmm. And now that we, you know, we've been able to scale it to some point, we decided to hire someone full time to just focus on the on the subscriptions experience. So it's everything yeah. that you're saying, from rethinking how to make it a more personalized UI flow to the um, concentrate and personalized email um, flows that we want to take them through to yeah. the actual um, box, probably. to the actual box experience, yep. to you know, every every single aspect you can think of. But yeah, but that's now in place
2: for us. Yeah. I just got very tired thinking about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. But you do have another channel. I, it is interesting to me because unless I read it wrong, like you do have a Costco. We have a Costco product. test going. Yes. Okay. Costco so, product. So that's an interesting channel. Like, it, you know, it's kind of, you have, you know, D to C and then you have this big wide sort of you know, wholesale, which has, you know, specialty and conventional and natural and mass. And then on the far right, you have Costco. Um, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that, you know, you're over there. So what what is that like? What what's the plan? How did that come about? What have you learned?
3: You know, you know?
2: I, I wanna like go back to kind of what I originally
3: said with which was around focus. Uh, and I do think this was an instance where you know, the buyer had had um, saw me at a show, it's our product and really, really wanted us in Costco. And so we weren't sure, you know, after the buyer um, had a few meetings with us, we're like, okay, you know, we'll develop a custom box for Costco. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, I would have done things a lot differently. I would have held out on doing the Costco tests until we could really focus on D2C and really learn about, because we were... Launching Costco in tandem with a new product launch, right. like our new unsweetened line, um, and without validating how that was going to go, which ones of the unsweetened were going to rise to the top, we were really doing the cart before the horse. So right. while there were a ton of learnings from Costco and some stores where we really, really, you know, did well, um, I would say overall, I think that was a in in honest trans you know um, transparency is a situation where I I would have waited now in hindsight. And I think that there's a lot of things in hindsight, um, I would have done differently with that launch.
2: Okay. Well, I just want to say thank you for <laughs> like sharing that and, and, and being honest and open about it, Yeah, you know, because Absolutely. honestly, that's why people are listening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hear a lot of people say, well, we were told to wait, but we didn't and everything was great. And so there is a lot of like conflicting, you know, founder stories, um, especially when it comes to club and mass and, you know, you're not ready, you're not ready, but then we did it and it was amazing, you know, and it's, and for some products that yeah. might be true. And that's why it's
3: hard because there's not one, right. one size doesn't fit all in this industry. Right. As you know, what works for someone doesn't for another, some, some do super well in C, some can only do grocery. Like There's right. a whole array. Um, but I would say that with Costco, I mean, First of all, it's such a huge lift on a, any team, especially if you're an yep. emerging brand. Um, you have to build out a different packaging, a different palette mm-hmm. setup. Um, yep. You have to engage in certain promos, and we launched also during the pandemic when you couldn't sample. There's yeah. so many factors you have to consider, and that's all I would just you know, yeah, caution people is that there is a lot more detail <laughs> to yeah. think through, and not just the opportunity, but What resources is it going to take away from your core business? And if your team has a finite amount of resources, you just have to think that through more carefully.
2: Okay. Well, I think you might have just answered my last question, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is, you know, This is your opportunity to be like, these are the five things you need to know when you found a, you know, CPG company or like this is what I really wish someone would have told me. Or, you know, this is when I just kind of hand you the bullhorn and you say all the things that you want to say to people who were, you know, a year or two behind you.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think I would touch upon just what I said earlier. I think we, we almost actually went on a business, just focusing on grocery retail early on and, you know, and working with UNFI and some of the bigger distributors. Yeah. It is very costly. Yeah. When they pay you, it's yeah. nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, not only when they pay you, but then you have chargebacks, you have all these other considerations to, so honestly, that almost um, put our business under, yeah, and I think that there is a desire to think, um, oh, I'll just launch. You know, you gave that example too. I'll just launch in Whole in Whole Foods nationally, and then we're good. And we made it, right? You know? mm-hmm. And I think that's um that's actually, first of all, it's very expensive to launch, and that's only the beginning of your journey because it's easy to get on shelf. It's much harder to stay there. Yeah keep those turns going so um, I would advise to start small you know if you're in grocery retail start in a region, really prove that out before spreading. The temptation is always there to grow to expand nationally with a retailer um, but it's in the short term it seems like a great revenue strategy but longer term it usually you know not usually it, it can it can at times backfire. And um, really being able to prove out strong regions first will yep. give you the, the, from a founder perspective, also the um, confidence that yep. you have a product that turns and delivers. And then also confidence to buyer to say, hey, you know, if you put me in this store, here's this what we're delivering what do. in the mm-hmm. Southeast. Um, and we think it that, you know, it will perform similarly. You just have a better story to tell.
2: I so. think especially now, too, they're not, you know buyers in in stores are are really in a pickle, Mm -hmm. you know, even if they want to do a category, you know, reset, they don't have people in the stores to do them. You know, everyone's pushing back their reviews. Everyone's pushing back their resets. They're not really looking for innovation because, you know, they can't right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a couple of them are, and, but there's so many new players and there's so many new online marketplaces and e-com sites. And, you know, I just feel like, and the, and the lines have gotten blurred, you know, the fact that, you know, their anthropology has some really fun food projects, you know? Mm -hmm, So yeah, I think all, everything you're saying is so right. You know, know, know your product and also everything that you've said in the last hour just speaks to like knowing what works specifically for your thing. And the only way that you're going to know what works for your thing is to intimately understand your thing. Yeah. agreed. <laughs> and you know, it's great. Agreed. Anything else you, you want to throw out there? Cause I think I, I interrupted. No, I just think that, you know,
3: there's a temptation to want to be everywhere all at once. And so just, you know, um, taking that, that more measured approach, I would yeah. definitely say.
2: And, um, awesome. Yeah. I think well, sp- that's, that's the main yeah. one.
3: I mean, yeah. obviously there's so many details along
2: the way, but if I would say one thing, focus and start small. Amazing. So speaking of um, your incredible direct-to-consumer growth, that's where we're going to send people to shop. It's mytedrop.com, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Amazing. Um, and Sashi, I just want to thank you so much for coming on these conversations are so they're so great. And
3: Yeah. I, I, I like the know.
2: realness and that um, you know, that
3: founders, future founders can come here and really get the true transparent um behind the scenes. Cause I think that's yeah. so important. It's something I wish I had early on. I
2: know, me too. Well, speaking of you listeners, um, thank you for continuing to listen and continuing to recommend it to your friends and your teammates. Um, Armin is our new engineer Um, he is going to be with us now on recording days so that's exciting thank you Armin and um, Sashi thank you so much for being an incredible guest Uh, I really loved meeting you thanks so much for having me truly I appreciate it and love what you're doing amazing Um, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce